You're listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. We're back from a little hiatus. I don't know about you, but it's been a super busy fall with sports injuries for me. I, I've seen some pretty weird injuries this fall. I saw a surge in some injuries in my office. I had a, a boatload of ACL tears at one point. Uh, I had some really weird stress fractures this fall. Just just interesting stuff. And it just seems like overall there's just been a lot going on this fall in general in my own personal life too. And it doesn't help to get parainfluenza and get laryngitis for a couple of weeks. So that doesn't really help very much there either as far as recording episodes. But with all that aside, I'm happy to bring you a new episode today with a previous guest as we review some recent research in the world of tennis. So let's dive in as I try to keep up volleying back and forth. There we go. A little pun for you. With my guest as we tackle tennis research, I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. My guest today, as I mentioned, is a former guest on our podcast, Dr. Nero Gianthi. Dr. Gianthi is an Associate Professor of Orthopedics and Family Medicine at Emory University. He is the Associate Director of their Primary Care Sports Medicine Fellowship and Co-Director of the Youth Sports Medicine Program and Director of Sports Medicine Research and Education at Emory. Dr. Gianthi is considered one of the country's leading experts on youth sports health, injuries, and sports training patterns, as well as an international leader in tennis medicine. He is a team physician for multiple teams in the Atlanta area, and he is the director of the Emory Tennis Medicine Program. Welcome back to the podcast, Niru. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be on. And of course, you, you have me on for my two favorite things, youth sports and then tennis. So I appreciate it. Well, as I was going through some literature, just trying to find some research articles that just happened to pop up that a whole bunch of these were tennis articles. So I'm like, well, I know who I need to get on the podcast to talk about these. So I'm glad to be able to have you back and, and talk about these. We're going to dive right in. I've got three articles that we'll tackle today that were published recently. I'm going to start with an article published in Sports Health. This was in the January, February 2022 issue from Frederick Johansson and colleagues. It was titled Extensive Training Load and the Association with Back Pain and Competitive Adolescent Tennis Players Results from the SMASH Cohort Study. And SMASH stands for Shoulder Management and Assessment Serving High Performance. And you're probably wondering, well, why are they talking about back pain? Uh, this was kind of, I guess, just a cohort, and they kind of studied both shoulder and back. And the, the second article will discuss the shoulder injury part of this. But this was a cohort study. It evaluated 198 competitive tennis players that were ages 13 to 19, they did weekly follow-up for 52 weeks, so for a whole year. The hypothesis was that there was, if there was a rapid increase in their workload, it would be associated with a higher incidence of back pain. So just some background for this study. The average amount of tennis played for a 15-year-old from previous studies is 17 hours per week. And the lifetime prevalence from previous studies suggests that back pain in adolescent tennis players is 77%, so that's pretty high. The study excluded athletes who had reported back pain in the previous six months. And the way they did this study is they had an initial questionnaire and some demographic things that they did, and then they were sent weekly messages to answer the following questions. They were asked, how many hours or minutes of match play did they have in the preceding week? How many hours or minutes of practice did they have in the preceding week? And then how many hours or minutes of other training activities did they have in the previous week? And then they used a back pain scale to measure the intensity of back pain, and it was reported either they had lower back pain, upper back pain, or neck pain. And they had a back pain disability rating scale that was used as well. And then they were also asked about their number of training days per week and then any acute injuries to the back that they may have had. 
So they did this thing where they they had a, this acute workload spike. It was defined as using a ratio of the sum of training and match hours in the week divided by the average of the same from the preceding four weeks. And then a spike was defined in their training workload as a ratio greater than 1.3. They also looked at a workload to age ratio, which was considered high when it was greater than 1.1 and low when what is 0.9. And the way they determine this is just the number of hours of training per week divided by the athlete's age. And if you're not familiar with a lot of recommendations in pediatric sports medicine, the typical recommendation is you should not be practicing and doing things more hours per week than your age. That's kind of what's set out there. Now, again, that's a recommendation, but we all know that many athletes exceed that significantly. Outcomes of back pain were there if there was a pain intensity of two or more rated by the athlete, and then recurrent events for back pain were defined as back pain that was reported after a period of at least a week with no reported back pain on the questionnaire. So if they had a week that they reported back pain, if they went at least a week without reporting back pain again, and then they reported back pain once more, then it was considered a recurrent episode of back pain. For the results for this, the average response rate was 85%. 68% answered at least 90% of the weeks that was there. So that's pretty good. 79% reported on 75% of the weeks, and then 85% reported at least half of the weeks. The mean age was 14 and a half, with 59% of the participants in the study being male. So what did they find? For each additional workload spike in their tennis training or matches, the hazard rate ratio was 1.17 for developing back pain. And then for each additional workload spike in their fitness training, so that's outside of their tennis activities, the hazard rate ratio was 1.13 for developing back pain. And they found no correlation between the workload to age ratio related to back pain. So interestingly, if you did have a higher or lower workload in relation to your age, there was no correlation there with whether you develop back pain or not. For those that had a workload spike, for those that did not, there was an odds ratio of 2.18 for those. And then if we just look at overall incidence of back pain, 43% had at least one back pain episode, which worked out to an incidence of 0.91 per 1,000 hours played. For recurrent back pain that included the initial episodes, the incidence increased to 2.11 per 1,000 hours played. 80% of the athletes were reporting low back pain. 25% mid-back and 13% neck, and obviously that adds up to over 100% because athletes were able to report multiple sites of pain potentially. If we look at what parts of tennis were most painful, 63% reported that serving was most painful. Many of you are frequent seers of par stretch fractures. Certainly, I see this probably the most frequently from reporting serving, and that's just, if you think about it, if it's a right-handed server, we tend to see left-sided pars fractures, at least in my experience. It's the opposite side of what your handedness is because that's where you tend to get the most arching. Obviously, you can get bilateral, and you can certainly get the unilateral ones, but we tend to see it the opposite side. Same thing for throwers. Right-handed throwers, I tend to see left-sided stretch fractures and vice versa. 27% forehands were most painful. 23% were backhands. The national level players actually reported a lower incidence of back pain. They did have spikes in their training volume only 9% of the time compared to 33% of the regional level tennis players. They thought that this may be just related to better technique of those that were the national players. So so we'll see. I don't know if that really turned out to be is, is really the reason why. But interestingly enough, you saw less of the spikes in the workload in the national players. So they had a more consistent workload rather than the regional players. So what are your thoughts on this study, Nero? Well, thanks, Mark. I would say a few things. I have to do a few qualifiers. First of all, the investigators, I know all of them, and Frederick Johansson is actually a, a close tennis medical colleague of mine, phenomenal PT, PhD researcher, and he has a close tie with the Swedish Tennis Federation. So the population is phenomenal. The follow-up is phenomenal. And I've done these studies and his follow-up rates were amazing, 85% for weekly surveys over a year. Long and short, you have to believe this data. The other qualifier is actually this and the other Smash article, I was asked to be the reviewer for it 
for sports health. So definitely have some intimate knowledge of how this kind of came through. And I really like his methodology. I tell you, you know, compare these European studies and follow-ups, and they use the Austro Injury Survey Scale developed in Oslo, which generally has the best validity when you do it weekly, which we could never dream of. <laughs> for some reason, we can't get the same follow-up in America. I don't know if it's technology or whatever it is. I'm very impressed with the methodology. The second thing is that I like the approach of trying to determine what are the biggest work or training load factors. And I do like the, you know, and many of you know, the ACWR, most of it, most of the team-based data was at 1.5. In other words, a 50% workload spike. This shows even lower workload spikes that would potentially result in symptoms. And that's an important factor. The other thing is the other studies, in my, to my recollection, that include ACWR, and we're looking at some of these as well too, only include training load. And they were very careful to include competition and training load, which is, I believe is probably more accurate because we know that competition has more risk. And so the measurement of the number of spikes is also a bit novel in the way they looked at it throughout the year. I love the design. The, the trick about tennis is you have unpredictable spikes. So in other words, if you go into a tournament, you might go in there and lose first round and lose in the back draw and you have, you're done. And it's, it's actually a very low volume tournament. Or at least in America too, you have tournaments where over a weekend you can end up playing six matches in two to three days. And then you have an enormous workload and competition spike. So in the practical sense, I always tell my you know junior tennis players and even high-level tennis players is that we can do everything to control your workload during the week and you can address that, but we can't do much to alter or predict what your competition load will be. And I know they didn't look at this study, but there's a little bit of information about training load to competition load ratios. And so if you exceed one-to-one ratio, that's risky in a, let's say, a high-level adolescent player like this. So in other words, if more than 50% of your time is spent in, in competition, you're more at risk. But that includes if you're in match play, if you're training during the week and you also do a lot of practice matches, count that as competition because the intensity is higher. So I like it a lot. The limitations for me are that, and again, great study, but there are certainly, as you know, a number of other potential factors that may not have been looked at. So while we look at age versus hours, and we developed that rule a number of years ago, and it, and it seems to work in some, I guess, a number of the studies as far as a predictor for injury or at least injury risk, you know, just pure exposure hours is alone a, a potential risk factor. We have sports training ratios, and we're looking at about six different workload risk factors. And in, in our, we have a sample uh, that we're looking at our start to play study getting analyzed right now as we speak. So, you know, the only limitation for me is really is maybe not seeing all of those um, other risk factors. Obviously, they're only looking at back pain here, so we don't know what the actual problems were. Was it something that was a significant injury? Did they just have a little bit of soreness in their back and then it resolved? So that's always the hard part, you know, just looking at that and with the survey study. So we don't have actual diagnoses or what the the problems were here. You mentioned a comment earlier that that I love your take on, since obviously you're, you intimately know the, the international tennis world. When they do competitions, you mentioned obviously here we're crazy obsessed with how much we pack in in a small period of time, oftentimes in our weekends. Is, is it the same overseas? Do they have that same approach to packing stuff in like that? I've had a, the fortune of being out there a bit over the last like maybe five or eight years and looking, you know, as you know, the, the whole sports specialization, the high volume training, I, I thought it was an yep. American problem. 
but I'm actually learning very much so that it's like McDonald's. Like if we have a good <laughs> problem here in America, we try to give it to other countries. <laughs> and so I think it's certainly happening there. I actually overall think they still do a better job overall because there is still a better emphasis on athlete development. And as you see the national players here, they're able to be more centralized and monitored. So in other words, Sweden's a small enough country that top players will generally be in their in national training centers in America. It is a free for all. You get maybe, you honestly have only about 16 in each age division that are training at the national training centers. And then you have 95% of them are doing it you know, out on their own, you know, with private, which is fine, you know, it should be that way. We're so big, but while we may have, or they may have somewhat similar types of environments as far as competition, the volume of them is probably less and they have a tighter control per se of who's actually experiencing that. So we published in Sports Health, you know, the appropriate ways to train an adolescent, highly specialized athlete, because, you know, look, let's face it, and you and I both know, that there's a, a third of them that are going to just go for it, train intensely, mm-hmm. expose themselves to the risk. But how can we manage them through that? And I think if you have early recognition, as, as these investigators and are suggesting, and early treatment and monitoring, you can probably avert a fair amount of the more serious consequences of it. Meanwhile, I don't think we have like we have a tennis medical program. We partner with about twelve academies, and so we we do that for our partner academies here. But I would say we're pretty much the only program in the country that does that. So it's kind of a little bit of the wild, wild west. <laughs> Do you think that's probably our biggest problem of trying to reproduce some of this type of research here in the States just because we are so spread out and it's such a large country that, you know, as you mentioned, you have kind of like a, a, a little pod there that you can capture. But a country like Sweden, I mean, they, they have probably that easier accessibility. And, and the way I think a lot of youth sports are set up in developmental programs overseas, too, are a little bit different models than here. So they, they do have that kind of like system that they can follow them up. Whereas here, it's kind of like, as you mentioned, it's sometimes the Wild West where you're at. Yeah, I think that let's do one qualifier is that the group we're talking about here and even in all the studies today are a very small group of the overall pot of tennis players. Sure. So this group right here is basically the best regional and national level players, period. Like that's 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 their group. It's actually mm-hmm. like 300 players and 200 were eligible. In the States, athletes are junior tennis players that train at this level, which we have we have quite a few of them. I'll give you an, I'll just give you actual numbers. This is from USTA Marketing. There are about 400,000 high school tennis players overall and about 4 million tennis players overall, let's say in America, you know, they're just casual and adult. Sure. There's 400,000, there's 40,000 that play the USTA tournaments. So it's actually like, a, it's less, it's like 10%. So what we're talking about with, and in fact, the last study we'll talk about is really the 10%, but that 10% contributes to most of the injury risks that we see. The, those are the ones that we end up seeing in clinic. It's it's not the casual high school tennis player or the ones that are playing recreationally. I, I actually don't see, for as many, I see about a third of my practice is tennis players. And I very it's very uncommon for me to see a casual high school tennis player in clinic. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I would probably echo that. I mean, you'd know it better than I would because you, you do work in the tennis world a lot more than I, uh, but I, I rarely see the the very recreational tennis player or, you know, the non, the non-elite high school player in my mm-hmm. office for tennis related problems. So usually it's something else. I would probably echo that just from my experience, but obviously you, you have a little bit more niche practice for that. 
Yeah. And, you know, it points to the thing. And, and I think that's a really important point as we, as we go through this and, you know, I love the scientific part and kind of the reason my research head keeps spinning. <laughs> but if we take a step back, which I know you do, you're a very big picture thinker is that let's first understand. And I tell all the junior academies when I speak to them, I say, first, make me a promise you'll play as an adult, because as tennis as a sport has the best morbidity and mortality outcomes of any sport. It has people live about 9.7 years longer adult. These are adults. There's a 47% risk reduction. And there's a study of 80,000 adults, you know, adult players looking at account for every other risk factor. So if you can survive this whole period and continue to play as an adult, you're in good hands. Secondly, actually, if you take out this 10% that is high intense training group, the other 90% have the most, they're on teams, they're on high school teams, they're the most positive outcomes. They don't get hurt that much. If you look at high school data, like Rio studies and all that kind of stuff, I mean, tennis and, and Aspen Institute has come, we, we, you know, I consulted with them a little bit and we, we rated the top 10 sports with regard to injury risk and positive social benefit and all these things academically and everything. Tennis is extremely high, but if they remove, we don't see these kids in that data. The really answer is that, boy, that environment, the high, you know, like a, a recreational environment, doing it for fun and maybe playing in high school team and maybe playing adult teams when you're older that path is actually relatively low risk with lots of benefit. And it's fine. And you and I both work with the higher level athletes is you're asking them just to take a calculated risk. So mm -hmm. we know that it's going to be a bigger problem potentially. And so this, all three articles, you chose them pretty strategically. It seems that we need to send that message from the beginning to the end about how you control their workload or workload spikes. And then the other article, like, well, you, when you do musculoskeletal assessments, what should you look for and how do you control that? So I think, if we focus our energies on the injury risk reduction, it should be in this 10% group. Yeah, well, good. Why don't we move on to the second article? It's also same group, same issue, same author. And this one was the association between spikes in external training load and shoulder injuries in competitive adolescent tennis players, also again from the SMASH cohort study. The methods were exactly the same as the back pain study. They excluded players, though, who had shoulder pain in the preceding three months. They had a little bit higher cohort here, so 252 athletes now were assessed. Same questionnaires were used, but the shoulder pain was assessed using the OSTRCO, which stands for Oslo Sports Trauma Research Center Overuse Injury Questionnaire. A shoulder complaint was defined, and they used two things, shoulder complaint and shoulder injury. So the shoulder complaint was defined as a sum score on this questionnaire of 20 or more out of 100, and then the classification got changed to an actual shoulder injury when the sum score was above 40 on the questionnaire. So what did they find? For every additional workload spike in training or match play, the hazard risk ratio was 1.26 for shoulder complaints and also similar for shoulder injuries. And for each additional workload spike in fitness training, the hazard risk ratio was 1.11 for shoulder complaints and 1.18 for shoulder injuries. So higher hazard risk ratio than for back pain that we see here from the previous study, fairly similar for the fitness training. Their incidence for a first shoulder complaint was 0.77 per 1,000 hours of participation and 0.38 per 1,000 hours for shoulder injury, so lower here than what we see in the back pain group. There was a recurrent issue. We see an incidence increase to 2.68 per 1,000 hours, so this was higher than the back pain group for shoulder complaints and 1.12 per 1,000 hours for shoulder injuries. You know, again, I'll, I'll take your your input on this one as well, Nero. I, I'm assuming it'd probably be very similar for this as the previous study, since it's just basically looking at a different body part, but same methods and things. Yeah, they were really interested in shoulder because, you know, a couple of the investigators, including Frederick himself, are, are really big international 
experts in the rehab of the shoulder. We've long felt like the shoulder is a big part of tennis, but if you look at the conclusions, actually, the back is actually the most common reason to pull out of a tennis tournament. Adult professional tennis player or junior tennis players is probably second or third. So shoulder is important, but it's in tennis, you, you get everything. You know, again, I do like the study. And the reason, so you, you mentioned before about this doesn't have the diagnosis, which is exactly true. These are shoulder complaints. The way the Oslo trauma research scale is developed was actually to try to capture symptoms. You know, when we look at overuse, and you and I both see a lot of overuse and overload injuries, sometimes it's like this subtle thing. You kind of feel it, feel it, feel it. And then you come in and then you're like, oh man, now you have a stress injury or you're off mm-hmm. some shoulder. The intent of that was to capture that group, which is actually a fairly large group. And we use it too. I actually use that scale because I, I really like it. You know, half of young athlete injuries are, are 50% of them are overuse. And again, study after study, our, our data is showing that again. I think this is, it's a nice tool to, to be able to identify people. And the, the message they have here is when you get some mild shoulder symptoms, that's like the smoke. You have to start talking about like, hey, if, mm-hmm. if they're saying they have like some shoulder pain, like we, we're very keen on that in the baseball world, right? Yeah. Uh, it took a while and, and I wouldn't say we've solved it, right, Mark? But I think we're keen on it and, and it's accepted. If you say your shoulder or elbow hurt and you're, you're a pitcher, I think at any level, it's, it's pretty acceptable to say, you know, we got we to gotta modify your pitching load and, you know, start rehabbing or whatever you have to do. Well, I think maybe let's look at it, this message too. And with very little, very subtle, like just a 30% workload spike, your risk of developing shoulder symptoms increases. And I think similarly, you should probably address that. And, and these are high-level tennis players who are the ones who are at risk to have more significant long-standing problems. The limitation is the lack of the diagnosis. We have a diagnosis in our, we're doing a clinical study again, where we have an easier capture, obviously, because they're stuck waiting for me in the office and they have to fill out a survey. <laughs> <laughs> so we get diagnosed, but what we lack is actually that weekly, like the development. Of it. We can get an association, like we'll query all the same, these same things, like how much is your workload and how much is your competition load. And so we do all that, but we only get it that one time. Mm-hmm. We, we ask them retrospectively. And so we have our limitations, even though we have clinical data. Again, I like where they're headed with it. And the, the findings are, are, are helpful. I've actually quoted this study, both these studies, quite a bit to my junior tennis players saying that, look, your sensitivity to workload spikes is, is actually probably even, you know, you have to be a little bit more careful. It's actually higher. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we'll continue with our last article on tennis injuries. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From the Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts, <laughs> you know as well as I do, time flies. But it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. 
Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. Make your podcast soar with The Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. We're back with Dr. Neo Gianti, and we're discussing several recent research articles focusing on tennis medicine. And our final article, I guess, was involved with this study, which was published in the July-August 2022 issue of Sports Health, and it was titled Age and Gender Differences in Injuries and Risk Factors in Elite Junior and Professional <laughs> Tennis Players. So, Nir, I'm going to have you take us through this study since you were involved with this, of what you were evaluating and what you found. Okay. I was involved a little bit more than I expected to be on the back end. Robin Rice, she's a wonderful physical therapy. She was originally a physical therapist doing her PhD. She chose to do her PhD on this particular project. This is among several different papers really come out of it on what's called the USDA High Performance Profile. I don't know why, but she asked me to help be one of her PhD mentors, which I don't know if you mark, I've never done that before. I never sat on a PhD, you know, like a, a committee and was there for her defense and everything. And so I had a chance to look at the data pretty closely. So what they did was there's a thing called the USA High Performance Profile. It's well thought out. It was developed, gosh, probably 15 years ago, at least. It's been updated. Todd Allenbecker, who is a co-author here, Kathleen Stroya, Ben Kibler, and I think I'm, I'm probably missing at least one other name. Really well thought out. Bunch of series of musculoskeletal tennis-specific tests that you would do to potentially identify injury, injury risk, and in areas of opportunity to help improve and mitigate that risk. But it's never been really studied. You know, they try to do it so coaches could do it, but frankly, I think it's just a bit beyond what a coach would really have the capacity to do. So, so an athletic trainer, physical therapist perform HPPs, we call them uh, high-performance profiles, on about 257 high-level players. Again, we're talking about this, even not even 10%, even like the top 1% and professional players. And this is, it's really hard to get that captive of an audience. And this was primarily done at the National Training Center. And, and you know, they did, prim- you know, like usually, it actually involves upper extreme, but a lot of it was trunk and lower, lower body. The da- this data set was on that and a reporting of injury and then um, trying to stratify them, which I like the way it was stratified. I guess I contributed some of the, a little bit of suggestions of, you know, um, continue to stratify in this way. And, I, you know, there's ways to stratify. One is binary where you say like adult versus kid or something like that. But when you stratify with at least three groups, in my experience, I believe you can find differences more easily. And and that's in fact what they did. So they stratified into kids 12 and under, thir- they use age 13 to 17, and then adult would be 18 and older. And, I, and remember, when we're talking about adult, we're not talking about adult recreational. These are professional tennis players. So up to about 27 years old. They do a high-performance profile on each of them and then looked at where there might be associations for injury and who, who gets them and who's more likely. So I want to summarize just basically the key finding itself. To me, what I take away from this is that the area of susceptibility was the low back and those with trunk stability deficits tended to have more low back symptoms, as you know, the risk for PARS then is, is the concern. And gender-wise, females, just like our data and just like Andrew Streclione's data in Boston Children's and others, is the, the athlete who's most at risk. So an adolescent group, female athlete with poor trunk stability, 
was the high-risk athlete who had an association with trunk injuries and low back injuries. And that alone I've used countless times to always assess prone trunk stability and sideline trunk stability on dominant, non-dominant side. And everyone who comes up with low back pain, tennis player or other, and we, on their follow-ups for all PARS injuries, we follow it all the way through until they demonstrate that they can really hold good trunk stability. And then we actually had trunk rotational stability as well too. Now there are other findings in here with hamstring flexibility, maybe drop vertical jump, but I want, so the message is, again, there's a lot of data in here. That's my, my main takeaway and that alone. And I know you see a lot of low back stress injuries has helped me a lot to really stress trunk stability and perhaps the mitigation of low back stress injury or low back problems in young athletes, adolescent. You know, and, and the interesting part of that, when you're looking at this, and obviously this this population that you're looking at, I don't know what their typical training is from a strength training standpoint. I think the biggest problem I see in a lot of these athletes that come in is, is you know, they go out and they do all their practices and stuff, but they're doing very little strengthening. It's mostly focused on just practice and technique, practicing, you know, doing simulated games, then obviously competing, uh, especially if we're looking at just the the typical high school athlete that's out there. But, but there's not a lot that's done in strength training. And particularly, again, also in the female athletes. So we see that there's, you know, this kind of taboo, you know, you, you, girls shouldn't be working on strength and, and what kind of stuff. And, or they just don't know what they're supposed to be doing or they focus on the wrong muscle groups for what really are important for that particular athlete. And then we see a different incidence in this study here for where you're looking at it when they get older. And is obviously when a lot of these athletes get into the collegiate level, and again, I'm talking about outside of the elite athlete, there's going to be some formal strength and conditioning programs that are done there that probably are a little bit more intensive than that may have received at most high schools that are out there. In this population that you guys were looking at, is there any sort of like formal type of strength training program that's associated with this? Or is it just kind of all the, the typical things that we'd expect to see? So those that are training full time, for example, the USA National Training Center, absolutely. It's a huge part of their program. With this number of people, what you're getting is athletes who come in maybe for a brief period and come out and they may get it for spurts. Mm-hmm. And they may get it at home too. Like we have, we partner with like 12 academies and some have a dedicated person who comes out and it's what you're doing. Like there's, you know, one of our folks we partner with is awesome. He works quite a bit on strength training at young levels. He understands, he reads our data and Ted, you know, mm-hmm. and, and he, he knows what to do at developmental stages and, and it's great. And, but then there's others that are focused on the performance side of it. So they're working on speed and agility and all these other things, which is fine but not necessarily as much on the strength and injury prevention side of trunk stability um, and um, these measures that we're talking about here. So uh, again, we talked earlier about the Wild Wild West. It's, it's all across the board and it's really, and remember there's a cost to that too. Mm-hmm. And so, but I will tell you, there's not a cost to actually doing some of the basic things on your own. So we have a ton of home exercise sheets and patient ed information. And, and again, we're fortunate we have a tennis athletic trainer, but even if we didn't, if they were just coming in the office, we just say, hey, these are the three or four neutral spine exercises and trunk stability exercises you need to do, period. That's it. And then if it's a shoulder issue, like the kids with the older, we have a shoulder program ready to go and we have a shoulder care program, you know? And, and so, you know, baseball has done a good job. Uh, we haven't stopped the problem or the epidemic of the, you know, the shoulder and elbow injuries, but sure. these people are aware of throwers 10, you know, we created a tennis 10 plus, like somewhere between a, a FIFA 11 plus and a, and a thrower's 10. And we have a, we have a program that we do as part of a warm up and cool down program. But, it, you know, for uh, adult players, we studied it, we're about to publish, but we have it for junior players. We haven't, 
pushed it out as much for the junior players yet because um, it's just it's a it's a tall burden to ask, but but that's probably our next step. They're, they're good. Junior players are good about the warm up and cool down. It's about the stuff you're talking about. It's the strength training, and if you look at your total hours a week, like what's the ratio of it? You know, I asked my my friend and colleague Mark Kovacs from he used to work at UCLA National mm-hmm. Training Center, and he's a PhD, exercise sports scientist. You know, he had you know at the National Training Center is about sixty percent tennis, forty percent work on your body. And so if you look at most programs, I'm sure you would see the same in, in our communities. It's probably 80 to 100% their sport and maybe 10 to 20% or 0 to 20% working on their body. I think that's probably a more realistic number yeah. where we see it. And probably, I don't know, is that the same for you? Because we don't see a ton of external stuff. Yeah. You mentioned your, your tennis 10. Have you guys started to do any research on that? Yeah, so we did it. We did it on the adult population. We knew the compliance was very low, so we have a population that needs an intervention, and we knew the injury would be very high. <laughs> so we were right mm-hmm. on both of them. Mm-hmm. So it was actually effective. We had 350 adults enrolled. We put them in high compliance and low pl- compliance groups, and those that were uh, and had nine month or I think it was nine month or year follow up. And those that were uh, high compliance, meaning that over 50% of the time they were doing the warm-up and cool-down program, had lower rates of injury and lower severity of injury. We're finalizing our, our, our data analysis, but it's really encouraging. We're really cool. happy with that. Yeah, we did a similar thing here. We haven't done any research on it yet, but we put together, just with my interest in running and running medicine, I, we put together a runner's 10 here as well, just kind of with our uh, several of our physical therapists just kind of coming up with some some key exercises that we thought are, are yeah. the biggest deficiencies we see in the office for running. But yeah, we haven't we haven't done any formal research on it yet. But that's, I'd love uh, to say, can you, can you, do you mind emailing me oh, that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to absolutely. use that. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll, we'll send that to you. I'd love to just see your, your tennis tent. Yeah, ours is actually publicly available. If you go to Emory Tennis Medicine, search it. And if you just search under injury prevention on there, it's actually we have a we cool. Have a and we should still have our video link up. And yeah, we had a video of it too. And I know it had went down for a little while. So I'll, uh, I'll see if we have each of those. And and if so, uh, I will certainly, I'll get yours for sure. Cause I know yours is there. I have to double check to make sure that ours is still publicly available. Cause I know it went, went, went away for a little bit. Apparently there was an issue with the trademark. I don't know, but, but anyhow, <laughs> how that works in the legal world, but yeah, I will make sure to get yours posted on our show notes. So uh, any listeners of this podcast, if you're interested in, in what Nero has from Emory there, we will definitely have a link to that. So that'd be great. Cool. Yeah. So I appreciate the discussion today. I, I can hear in the background a little chaos at your house. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure the little ones are up and up and about now finally. And so I, I appreciate the chaos. I love it as a pediatrician. So <laughs> we had a surprise visit from their cousins from Florida. They drove up uh-huh. last night and then they, you can hear cool. them. <laughs> well, I'll let you get ready too. Cause I know you got, you got some football to watch today. So yeah. uh, we'll see who, which are you, oh, I, well, I probably shouldn't ask who you're rooting for because you've no, got allegiances on both sides. Because, uh, my team position friend uh, gave me the Atlanta Falcons uh, tickets, but I'm a diehard Bears fan. There you go. So I will uh, just leave it at that. Well, I'm hoping for a good uh, outing from Justin Fields today because he's yes. my quarterback. So on my fantasy team. So I'm hoping oh. he, uh, he pulls it home. I got him oh, off the waiver. Yeah. I've had a horrible season. I I picked the two old fart quarterbacks of uh, Favre, I'm saying Favre, Rogers and uh, Brady, and both of them have uh, obviously well underperformed for fantasy this year. Yeah. So uh, fortunately, Justin was on the waiver wire a couple weeks ago, and so he's sort of, sort of saved my team. (laughs) A little bit, but yeah, it's a lovely little family league. So that's great. Thank you so much for having me. 
Oh yeah, for sure. No, it's, it's good. And obviously if we get some other tennis stuff or some, some interesting sport specialization stuff, I know the guy to, to, to reach out to, I hope to see you at some upcoming meeting soon. Probably it'll be AMMS. Did you go to prism this year? I will be a prism as well. Sweet. Yeah. Well, we'll see you there. Uh, yeah. it's a, it's a good group. I look forward to having you there. Awesome. We'll catch up there. Okay. Yeah. So I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Nir Gianthi, for his tennis expertise and joining me today to discuss these research articles. Please check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter while it is still around. Uh, hopefully it'll stay around uh, at PedSportsPod. We appreciate you joining us for another research review episode of the podcast. And as we approach Thanksgiving, I'd like to express thanks for all of you listeners. It's been a wonderful experience for me, and I am so thankful for all of our dedicated listeners and the continued growth of this podcast. It really means a lot to me. So have a great Thanksgiving, everyone. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.